Well, if you have your Bibles, again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1260. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying and working through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And for the last few weeks, we've been in the last section of chapter 2. And Lord willing, today we'll finish that, hopefully. And we've been thinking about the subject of secure and standing and settled. And as I was studying this passage, it just really gripped my heart and what was to be one message has turned into three. And so we'll read this text together this morning. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. And this is what the Word of God says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This past week was the two-year anniversary when churches around the world, including ours, temporarily closed its doors because of the pandemic. In those early days, it was hard to get our minds around everything that was happening. There was so much that was unknown to us, and it seemed that the information was changing hourly. I'll never forget the Tuesday morning after the first Sunday, we closed the doors of the church. I was giving my first hours of the day to the Lord as I normally do, and as I was reading and praying through the psalm of the day, Psalm 16, God put in my heart a theme that I would go on to use to rally the church together. We will not be shaken. And as God put that theme in my heart, this is the only way I can describe what happened to me that morning. God also infused me with supernatural courage. A courage that I, along with the help of the elders and the deacons, would use to lead our church forward over the next two years. Now, I would never say to you this morning, and I don't think any elder or any deacon would say to you this morning, that we led perfectly and that we got everything right. I don't think any of us would say to you this morning that our strength and our courage never waned. 
I can give you example after example this morning. For instance, the afternoon in which a call came into the church and all my family happened to be in the office at that time when we received devastating news about a church member and we collapsed and wept in each other's arms. Or the day when out of nowhere my phone blew up with reporters and the news and church members and the emptiness and the loneliness and the fear that was so real, it felt like you could reach out and touch it. And you say, in the midst of the highs and the lows and the valleys and the suffering, uh, how did we get through that? Well, for me, it all went back to that Tuesday morning when it was me and my Bible and God. And he reminded me of the security that I have in him. And the rock and the anchor that I have in his word. And that even in the midst of the unknown, even in the midst of the crazy, even in the midst of fear, it is possible for a man or for a woman of God to stand secure and not be shaken. And what I'm saying to you this morning is the doctrinal truth that God used from His Word into my heart and life and the courage that He placed inside of me supernaturally in those early morning hours continually anchored me back to Him when there was the temptation to wane and wander and collapse. It's the only way I can describe it to you this morning. And as a result of that, two years later, and I pray to God that this shows for His glory, I am more passionate to preach the Word of God than I've ever been in my life. I have a greater burden for souls who don't know Christ as their Savior than I've ever had in my life. I have a greater burden for our church family and leading and pastoring and shepherding our church family into the future with all of the unknowns that are surrounding us. And you say, well, pastor, how does all of that come about? Are you listening, friends? It came from his word and from his truth. It gripped me inside and it did something to me. It was real. And it's in that context that Paul's words in these verses are so relevant to you and me. Word had come to the Thessalonian church that Jesus had already returned and that they had missed it. And they were gripped by fear and worry and anxiety and the unknown. How could they have missed it? 
And for two weeks, I have walked you through methodically and shown you in verses 13 and 14 how after Paul taught them about end-time events, his solution to their fear and to their worry and to their anxiety was to anchor them in doctrinal truth. And he took this young church back to the very foundation of their salvation and he reminded them that God hadn't forgotten them and that what God started in their life, he will finish in glory. And it is out of that doctrinal truth that he gave them in verses 13 and 14 that Paul shows them who they are in Christ and how they're secure in Him. And once they know their security in Christ, listen church, they can stand firm and they can remain settled no matter what happens. And what was true for me and what was true for the Thessalonian church can be true for every single person in this room. So let me pick up and talk to you for a few minutes about standing in verse 15. Look at what he writes. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul had already admonished the Thessalonians to stand firm. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is what he wrote to them. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. In other words, to stand firm. And now at the close of this chapter... In the conclusion of his instruction on end-time events, he gives them a similar admonition. Look at how he begins in verse 15. So then, this phrase is a transition phrase, and it emphasizes the fact that the two commands that Paul will give this church in verse 15 flow out of the previous 12 verses. Paul was telling this young church that in light of the error of the teaching that the day of the Lord had arrived, in spite of the present and future satanic attempts at deception, the terrible cost of preferring the lie and the pleasures of unrighteousness rather than adhering to the truth, and God's sovereign call to salvation in light of all of these truths. Church, you are to stand firm, and you're to hold on to the traditions that you've been taught. The first command is found in the phrase, stand firm. It is a present imperative phrase. It means it's present tense in language. It's to be done right now, and it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying to the church, if you feel like it, church, if you're having a good day, church, maybe you would want to potentially stand firm. No, he's saying you must stand firm. And friends, what he's reminding the Thessalonian church of, he's reminding you and I of, the Christian life 
is a call to stand. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, get that sentence. The Christian life is a call to stand. You can trace this imperative command all through the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Be watchful, stand firm, and listen to how he said they were to stand firm. In the faith, stand firm in the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Stand firm in the body of truth that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Be watchful and stand firm in that faith. Act like men and be strong is what he says in that verse. To the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, he writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, listen, stand firm in the Lord. So the Bible says that we're to stand firm in our faith. And we're to stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you go to the New Testament book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul outlines the armor of God that God has given the believer to protect them in the midst of spiritual warfare, do you know what he does in Ephesians chapter 6 in this section on the armor of God? He uses the word stand three times. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And God's desire is that we would stand firm in our faith, that we would stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would stand firm against the schemes and the strategies of the devil himself. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. He doesn't just want you to stand in the faith and stand in the Lord and stand against the devil and his schemes. He wants you to withstand all of the evil of the day. And at the end of it all, when your life is over, that you would be a testimony of having stood firm in place. He can't be any clearer. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14, stand therefore. And then he goes on to list every piece of the armor of God. And what he's teaching us over and over is that God gives you the belt of truth. He gives you the shoes of peace. He gives you the breastplate of righteousness. He gives you the helmet of salvation. He gives you the sword of the Spirit not to decorate your life, but so that you'll stand in your life. That's the purpose. You say, well, how do you do that? Romans 14, 4. The Lord is able to make you stand. This is not a call to work something up in your life. It's a call to embrace 
doctrinal truth. It's a call to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that truth and out of that relationship with Christ, you are so moved and affected by it that the only thing you can do is stand firm in it. That's the picture. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to perseverance. It's a call when at times in our lives, everything seems to be against us. Paul is saying it's in those times that the prospect of eternal glory with Christ should be an encouragement to us as believers to stand firm in our beliefs and in our practices in the face of division and deceit and discouragement and difficulty and darkness. And yes, I used all those D words intentionally. Took me a long time to write that sentence. And that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a stand in a placement in the midst of everything that is presently going on around us. And he qualifies how we're to stand. Do you see it? It's found in the very next command. The call to stand is made specific by Paul as he tells the church that they're to stand firm and they're to hold to the traditions that they were taught. The phrase hold to is similar to the phrase stand firm. It is a present imperative. It means it's present tense action. It should be happening right now. It is an imperative. It means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Stand firm and hold to. This phrase hold to is related to a word that means strength. It means might. It means power. And it conveys the idea of having such a secure grip on the traditions that he's talking about that you never let go. It is not a careless holding on to. It is not a weak holding on to. It is a grasping and holding on to as if your very life depended on it. And oh, by the way, it does. Stand firm. Hold to. It's the opposite of what Paul was correcting in the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, he told the Ephesians that God had given pastors and teachers and evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ would be built up. And the purpose for that equipping was Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is the idea behind Paul's commands to the Thessalonian church. Thessalonians, there's winds and waves of doctrine blowing all around your lives. How in the world were you so deceived to think that the second coming of Christ had already taken place, Thessalonians? I told you how it would be. Why are you being blown about? Why aren't you anchored? Why aren't you standing firm and holding on to what I taught you and what others have taught you? Why are you waving all over the map? Know anybody like that? Maybe you've been like that. 
And the answer to be blown about by every wind and wave and new fad that comes along is to be anchored in what's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And Paul refers to that as the traditions in this verse. And that word simply means that which is handed down from one person to another. And here's the idea behind it. Here's what Paul is teaching this church. God has passed his word and his truth down to me. And me and the other apostles are passing it down to churches like you. And what was handed down from God to us and we've handed down to you that you are to grab hold of, you are to hold on to, and you are to stand firm in it. You're not to waver from the truth. These false teachers were circulating a deceptive, distorted message that they had concocted themselves. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that his message was different from theirs. It didn't come from him. It came from God. And because it came from God, it's the only message they should hold on to, and it's the only message they should stand firm in. John Stott described it this way. To stand firm and to hold to the teachings means to be uncompromisingly loyal to the teaching of Christ and his apostles. This is the road to stability. It is the only way to resist false teaching. And it's by clinging to the truth. Stand firm, hold to. Now I want to show you something else in verse 15. It's important. It's, it sets the context for both of these commands. Do you see it? He says, brothers. So then, brothers. What was the context in which Paul issued, issued these commands? It was the church. It was the family of God. The church was to stand firm, and the church was to hold on to the truth of the word of God together. And you say, well, I understand that. Why are you pointing that out to us? Anybody can read that and see that. Oh, but don't you see the emphasis here? The church is to do this together. The church is to stand firm together. The church is to hold on to truth together. Let me interpret it this way for you. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as one. It's impossible. It's contrary to the word of God. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who isolates himself goes against all sound wisdom and counsel. Against all sound wisdom and counsel. It means that we need a family. It means that we need a body. It means that we need brothers and sisters. We need spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers to help us and to invest in us and to guide us. As one author said, the church is the fellowship of the faith. It's the society for sacred study. And you can't do that by yourself. And I would submit to you this morning that if you try to live the Christian life by yourself, you won't stand firm and you won't hold on. You need somebody to come into your life and speak into your life when you're wavering and waning, encourage you and hold up your arms and remind you to stand. 
and remind you to withstand and to remind you to hold on. And when you can't hold on, the Spirit is helping you hold on. And when you can't hold on, you have a brother or sister who's helping you hold on. That is the context of the commands in the church, in the family of God. And I would say to you as your pastor this morning, the day in which we live is not a time to be less committed to the family of God, less committed to the church. It is a time to be more committed than ever. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't think you do, you've been deceived by the devil. Amen. You're welcome. (laughs) So let me just ask you this morning. Are you standing firm? Are you holding tightly to what you've been taught? Or are you retreating, wavering, or complacent? Young moms, are you holding on to and standing firm in the glorious truths of the gospel for your strength, for your identity, and for your hope as you carry out the never-ending demands of caring for your home and your family? Are you holding on to those truths? that define you? For those who are in a career outside of the home, are you standing firm and holding on to what you've been taught in the midst of a work environment that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God? Are you standing firm in that workplace? Are you holding on? Or do you find yourself backing away from the truth for fear of what it may cost you? Students, Teenagers, college students, career age, young, married, adults. Are you standing firm and holding on to what you've been taught by your parents? To what you've been taught by your church? To what you've been taught by the leaders in your church? Or have you allowed the influence of a teacher or a professor who believes absolutely nothing to shake the foundation that has been put into your life? Have you allowed the worldly thinking and philosophy of this sin-filled, sin-cursed world to cause you to doubt the truth that has been poured into your life? Are you standing firm? Are you holding on as if you were the only student in your school to do so. Paul referenced a process in this passage where the truths which God revealed were handed down from one generation of believers to another without being altered. He described this process in greater detail in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And he writes, And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What Paul is teaching us with this truth, friends, is that every generation of Christians must receive the truth from another generation of Christians. And they must guard it. And they must make sure it's kept intact for the next generation. And so parents, may I ask you this morning, are you passing this truth that's been passed on to you 
to your children, not just by teaching them, but by living it? Are you passing it on by the way you live and the way you teach? Teachers in the church, elders and deacons and leaders in the church, are you intentionally, intentionally investing this truth and passing it on to the generations behind you so that they will stand firm and hold on to it to the very end when the world comes crashing down around them? Friends, the call, the call to the Christian life, it's a call to stand. It's a call to stand firm and not back down. Well, we've seen the security. We've seen the standing. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, we see that he reminds them to be settled. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. These final two verses contain the third prayer that Paul offers on behalf of the Thessalonians in this letter. And you'll notice in the first part of his prayer, at the beginning of verse 16, he gives an extended description of the object of his prayer. He says, it is to our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. Paul is viewing both the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father as the source of a Christian's comfort and hope. And the language that he uses in this verse provides powerful evidence of Christ's deity. He puts Christ and God the Father fully equal in person and in power and in respect in this verse. And he reminds the Thessalonians and us, if you look carefully at the verse, that because God is a God of love, out of his loving grace, he gives eternal comfort and good hope. And this is the foundation from which Paul prays specifically for the Thessalonians. And so we have to understand what he is saying here in this phrase in verse 16. The phrase eternal comfort speaks to a believer's confidence in the present. Our confidence right now in the idea behind this word comfort is the word encouragement, to put courage in, present tense. It means that the believer can live comforted or encouraged by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying in this life, the trials of the flesh and of the world and of the devil oppress and discourage us. But God, through His grace, has given us a comfort and an encouragement that reaches out into the future, into eternity, and provides heavenly resources for us now in the present so that we can stand firm and hold on with great courage. A courage, a sustainability that would help us to endure to the very end until we reach eternity. A God of grace, a God of love, gives us eternal comfort and eternal encouragement. 
And then he says he gives us good hope. That speaks to the believer's confidence in the future. All throughout the New Testament, hope has a note of certainty about it because it's grounded in the divine nature of God and it is grounded in the promises of God. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, the hope that comes from God never disappoints. And so do you, do you see what he's saying, church? He's just commanded them to stand firm and to hold on to the word of God, to the traditions, to the teachings. And now he's praying for them. And as, at, at the very beginning of his prayer, he's laying out the foundation by which they'll be able to stand firm and to hold on. That God, out of his love and his grace through which he's displayed to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give eternal encouragement. The resources of heaven in our lives to help us endure and stand firm. And it'll give us hope that no matter how difficult this life becomes, no matter what we're faced with, there's a hope out beyond us that nothing and no one can take away. It's a good hope. And when you have that kind of hope and that kind of comfort and encouragement, you can stand firm and you can hold on because you're secure. And notice where it's all coming from. It's all flowing from God himself in the work that his son did on the cross for you and for me. And that's why it's grace. And that's why it's love. It's what God lavishly pours out. And would you listen to your pastor this morning? This hope. This encouragement, this comfort, it is a present tense reality. You got it right now, this very moment, in this room, no matter what's going on in your life. If you're a believer in Christ, you have it now. So why? Why would you fall back? Why would you retreat? Why would you lose heart? Notice in verse 17 that out of this extended description of the object of his prayer, Paul prays two requests on behalf of the Thessalonians. That God would comfort their hearts and God would establish them in every good work and word. Do you notice what's absent from his prayer? Do you see it? God, Paul never asked God to lift the Thessalonians' burdens. God never, Paul never asked God to remove them from the dark days in which they're living. Paul never asked God to judge the false teachers. And listen, Paul never asked God to spare the Thessalonians of their suffering. What does he ask them to do? Comfort them and establish them. Comfort their hearts literally means to strengthen their heart, to strengthen the whole inner person. It, it is to bring, here's the picture, and you got to see how all this is building up. I'm trying to show you how it's all builded and built and connected together. He is praying now after he's admonished them to stand firm and to hold on and as he's reminded them of the grace and the love of God in Christ and how they have hope and encouragement, 
He is now praying that God would comfort their hearts, that God would strengthen them with inner stability. That they would be stable and they would be settled in the midst of the circumstances in which they're living. That he would comfort and encourage their hearts, their inner person, with strength and stability. And then notice what else he prays. That they would be established. This word means to support. Uh, Paul described it in Ephesians 3.17. That the believers would be rooted and grounded in love. That there would be a strong, rooted, grounded foundation in the lives of these believers. It is a prayer to be settled. It is a prayer for inner strength. Paul knew that the Thessalonians' greatest need was inner stability. He knew that they needed an unwavering faith, constant encouragement, and hope so that they would remain settled. Why? So they could have their ticket punched for heaven? Is that why he wanted them to remain settled? No, look at the text. So that they would engage in every good work and every word. Now listen carefully to me this morning, friends. We are not saved by works. But our good works prove that we're saved. You cannot separate salvation from works in the sense that once you've been saved by God's grace through faith, as His gift, you will work. And if you're not willing to work... You have to go back to the source and question if you've been saved. Because God's salvation always exhibits itself in good works. You cannot, listen, you cannot separate Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 from Ephesians 2, 10. You say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let me refresh your memory. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The only way anyone goes to heaven is by the gift of faith and grace from God. That's how everybody is going to be in heaven. It is a gift of God's grace through faith Believing and trusting in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for you when he died for your sins and rose from the grave. That's the only way anyone's going to be in heaven. So I hope your pastor's clear on that. It's not because you've been a good person. It's not because the good will outweigh the bad. It's not because you went to church every Sunday. It's not because you gave. The only way you're in heaven is grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. I hope that's clear. I hope that's crystal clear. But now listen to verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the connection? You're saved by grace through faith, but you're saved to serve. You're saved to work for and serve the Lord. 
It's like this, when you really understand everything that God has done for you through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will want to give your life back to Him in service. And God has put inside of you, when He saves you, a spiritual gift. And every person that's a believer has at least one spiritual gift. And if you say to me this morning, I don't have a spiritual gift, do you know what you're saying to your pastor you're not a Christian. Because the Bible says that every Christian's got at least one. So if you're a Christian, you got one. You got to find it. The leaders of the church got to help you find it. And then once you find it, you know what you do? You use it. And you keep on using it. And you keep on using it till Jesus comes. And then, now, now, do you see the flow of the text? I'm being redundant, but I want to be crystal clear this morning. This is who you are in Christ. You are secure. What God began in eternity past, he will finish in eternity future. You are destined for glory because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are secure, and nothing can take that away from you. And now that you have that security, you are to stand firm. You're to be rooted and grounded in the truth of the word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not to waver and be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine that comes along. And you're to stand firm and you're to hold on to this truth in the assembly of the living God, the body of Christ, the church, the family of God. Stand firm and hold on to it. Locking arms, brother to brother, sister to sister, spiritual father, spiritual mother, everybody together standing firm and holding on to it. And when you do that, you'll be settled. You'll be settled because God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have extended grace and love to you and they put courage in your hearts. And they've given you a hope and that courage and that hope, it's present tense. It's right now. You don't have to wait on it. You got it this very moment. And as you're sitting in that courage and that hope, God will give you inner stability and you'll be settled. And then he's going to firm you up so you can work and so you can speak words, so you can do the works of God and so you can speak the words of God, speak the words of life to other people. Now imagine the context of the Thessalonians. They needed to use works and they needed to use words because there were all kinds of deceptive teaching around them. And people were falling prey to it. And God's solution to the strengthening of his church is that the church would work and the church would use words. In the midst of that context, and my dear friends, can you not see that we are in a similar context? Have you not seen that over these last three weeks? That we're not to just sit here and, and just rest in our blessed assurance and have all this knowledge. We're to work. We're to pour into the generations behind us. We're to use words to give life to other people in the midst of the darkness. And we're to say, settled to look different than the rest of the world. And all of that flows from the grace and the love of God through Christ. It's not something that you've got to work up and muster up on your own. It flows out of your relationship with the living God. And when he gives you that comfort and encouragement and hope, it will change you. Can you see it? 
Oh, I've tried everything I know how to show you today so you can see it. One commentator said, inner strength is the basis of Christian stability. No amount of activity or positive thinking can compensate for the resolve and the energy that God creates in the heart through his word and through his spirit. We can only hope to withstand the outward pressures as we continually experience inward renewal. That's it. That's it. Like, you're going to stand firm? You're going to hold on? You better get alone with God. And you better sit until he pours it into you. As Paul makes clear to the Thessalonians, being settled comes from the grace and love of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what gives us comfort and hope and strength for the work of our hands. As a result, it is possible to remain settled, standing firm, holding on to the word of God in the midst of a world in which everything around us is shifting at an incredibly rapid rate. close with this the church certain of its future in Christ and at peace within itself and well established in Christian patterns of belief and behavior is a church that can stand firm in the face of opposition and persecution friends if you thought the last two years were hard I'm not sure that we've seen anything yet it's a call to find your security in Christ. It's a call to stand firm till the very end. And it's a call to remain settled no matter what comes your way. Does this text describe you? Does it describe your life, your perspective? how you're living, what you're thinking. The Christian life is a call to be secure. It's a call to stand, and it's a call to remain settled. Let's pray.